0: This is a Sunday talk by Joel, titled, What's the Story on Stories? Recorded July Fourteenth, Two 2002, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in
1: Eugene, Oregon. So the topic is about how should we, as spiritual seekers, view the future and the past, our expectations, our memories, and so forth. And just a few weeks ago, I actually gave a talk on time uh how many were here for that talk yeah almost everybody we went through through a series of inquiries experiments to examine is there such a thing as time and what we discovered was uh, time is imaginary time is literally imaginary the past is imaginary in the sense that it is made up of memories which are products of the imagination and i use imagination here to be that power that we have to create thoughts images Uh, All the mental phenomena. And the future is imaginary because it's, again, made up of ideas, uh, images, scenarios, and so forth. And since there is no distinction, uh, there's no boundary that marks off a past and a future from the present, we actually can't even talk about a present. There really is no such thing as a present. And we talked about how, at least, Christian mystics prefer this word now, the, the eternal now as Meister Eckhart says, the now that the first man was created and the now and the last man will die is the same now in which I am speaking. And then we examine that a little bit to see, isn't this always now? And even now is a uh, kind of extraneous word, we don't even need that. But that directs our attention to what is the truth, what is the reality of our situation. Here we are, always in the now. No one has ever experienced being anywhere else but in the now. So, and let's just all accept that, because I don't want to redo that talk this morning. Given that, we are going to be talking about past, present, and future, but we want to just realize that now we are talking about useful, conventional, but imaginary distinctions, distinctions that aren't actually there in reality distinctions we project onto our experience, okay? So that's just kind of a prelude. So generally, human beings think of their lives as moving through time, from a past, through the present, into a future. And this fundamental parameter or construction provides the framework in which we create stories about ourselves and others. Isn't that true? Isn't that all your experience? We have an idea of who we are, and that will vary from individual to individual, and from culture to culture, and vary considerably, but we each have an idea of who we are some entity, some ego, some being, some self, some soul, some spirit, or something like that, that exists in this framework of time, that was born in the past, some how many years ago, you're keeping track, uh, that is here, showing up now, in the present, and that will hopefully have some years left uh, in which to experience things. And the plot of the story, it's a plot that's conceived of in terms of what I want, what I desire, what I want to do with my life, what I want to achieve, uh, how can I be happy, all those sorts of questions. And it's an ongoing plot. It's It's a soap opera. It continues episode after episode after episode. So at the center of our lives here is this story, the story of I, the story of who we are. So then, what is the problem with this story? What's the big deal? What mystics say is, there is only one problem. Only one problem. Not that there is a story, but that we become so fascinated with the story, we lose track of the fact that it is a fiction. And that, in a nutshell, is the cause of all our suffering. So it's not the story that's the problem. My favorite analogy for this, of course, is watching a movie. We all go to a movie, a story is told, we get absorbed in the story. If it's a good movie, we enjoy it. We never lose track of the fact that it is a story. At least 99.9% of the time. If you do lose track of the fact it's a story, you're in deep trouble. (laughs) As children, we sometimes lose track of the fact it's a story. Children uh, can be overwhelmed by a movie, especially a scary movie, and start responding to it as if it were real. And the way we calm them down is to say, Oh, Deja is just a movie. There are really no no dinosaurs chasing anybody, it's just a movie, right? Isn't that what we do? We remind them, we point out to them, we want them to realize, oh, it's just a movie. Why? So they can enjoy the experience and not be terrified, not be truly terrified, because we like the experience of the emotion of terror, that's why we go see these kinds of movies. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with the story. Not only is there nothing wrong with the story, who would want to be without stories? I mean, just from the point of sheer enjoyment. All human cultures have told stories. Told stories around the campfire. Told stories about the past and the future told stories to answer questions like, where did we come from? Where are we going? Who are we? How can we be happy? And these stories vary considerably, especially if you study other cultures. Some of them are profound, dramatic. I mean, would we want to be out without these stories? Today we have stories called science theories. They're the same thing, the stories Big Bang. They're fascinating. Books, we have some in our library. You can read about it. How in the first nanosecond these energies were released and da-da-da, and how this happens and it all happened. The, the first part of the universe it, what I don't think they use the word cooled down anymore. What do they say? Solidified or
2: condensed.
1: Condensed? What would be the term be? Sure,
2: condensed.
1: Condensed. You know, all like in less than a second. Then, you know, how the galaxies formed and all that stuff, black holes and everything. People spend their whole lives absorbed in creating the story and readjusting the story. What would life be like without stories? Really, if you didn't have a story... You wouldn't have a a universe. You wouldn't have a cosmos. The cosmos is a creation of our imagination. At the most fundamental level, all the things, the forms, the phenomena of the cosmos are distinguished by our imagination, creating these distinctions. We construct these worlds that we live in. We don't do it alone, like you personally do it. That's why you can't, you know, uh, think positively about a Cadillac and expect one to show up in your driveway. We do them socially, together, as a culture, as a community. You can see that just through our language. There's no such thing as an individual language. There may be very primitive forms of language. They're only between two people. My nephew and his mother, for the first oh, I don't know, two years of when he learned to speak, they spoke their own language. Nobody else could understand it. Everybody got a little worried. It was about four stuff when he started learning English. And it wasn't a baby talk. It was strange. They understood each other perfectly. But it's a mutually, socially constructed phenomenon. As are our thoughts. As are our stories, by the way. So, In that sense we distinguish ourselves through this process of imagination but we tie ourselves all back together through telling stories to each other. We are all part of in a certain sense the same story. I had a friend in Los Angeles who was an actress who was in a play whose name has slipped my mind. Uh, It's the name of a an artist from the 1930s in Italy, in any case, the play was an interesting play. It was done in a mansion in l a that the company rented, and it had about oh, a dozen characters, maybe uh, six main characters and another six secondary sort of characters and then uh, some of these secondary characters were like only the butler you know or the gardener or something. The main story involved this family, this aristocratic family, and it had to do with fascists and communists and artists and all that. And you went to this play and it began with a murder and everybody assembled in the main hall downstairs. And there was a sort of a mezzanine and there's stairways going up and it was a quite elaborate mansion of the physical structure. And the murder happened. And then people rushed off into various rooms And upstairs and downstairs. And you chose one night to follow a set of characters. And you got their story. And as a kind of play, to get the full story, you had to come back several nights. Because you couldn't possibly follow everybody's story. It was all going on simultaneously. That's kind of what our our stories are like. They're stories within stories. Do you know what I mean? I mean, this is marvelous. I'm just trying to... uh, point out the complexities of these stories, the glory of these stories. So who would want to be without a story? Assuming it was possible. Are you raising your hand back there? Yeah. Yeah, you want to be without a story or what?
3: No, I'm just saying, so we've also created ourselves to have the emotions and physical traits of pain, and, and all the, the things to be able to involve ourselves in these stories through life. Yes. We well, create ourselves to be receptive to these stories, including all shock, disgust, pain, all the bad and good things that go with it.
1: Let, let's be careful here. We, as our true self, as consciousness itself, has created all that. We, as the character in the story, has not created all of that. So there's a big difference here. The character in the story is a creation of our true selves as consciousness itself. We've got to be very clear about this, otherwise we start confusing the ego with God. The ego is a creation of consciousness. So if you are talking about your true self, yes, we as that consciousness has created all this, including the pain, including the suffering, including all the disturbing emotions, including everything. Because there's no good story without some pain, some trouble, some conflict. Have you ever seen a good story that did not have conflict in it? Pain and trouble and whatnot? You have never seen a good story without that. I've said this before. You know, you just take any movie, your favorite movie, a movie that you really thought was just the epitome of what a good movie is. And you look at it, and you'll see there are disturbing episodes in it. Somebody cries, somebody has some pain, somebody's betrayed, somebody's killed, somebody dies. And you start going through that movie and start saying, well, let's take that out, let's take that out, let's take that out. You'll have nothing left. If it's a love story, you'll end up with the wedding at the end. (laughs) How long can you watch a wedding? You know this from your friends when they videotape hours of wedding that are fascinating to them. <laughs> and they show it to you. <laughs> Boring. And you know why it's fascinating to them because they know everybody in the, uh, you know, in the story, and they know where they're coming from, and they can see how they're responding. <laughs> so yes, the answer is yes. The whole enchilada. Can yeah. Can sure. you say
3: something about um, experiencing the human story as, if, you know, maybe the rising and dissolving of the experience? versus the attachment and clinging and constantly, repetitively mulling over in the pain versus the experience. So, I was just wondering about
1: that. Thank you. She's pushing me along here. That's what <laughs> I get it next. No, thank you. I just want to make sure that we understand the context of what we're talking about here. Because this is really important. Because if we don't understand the spiritual context, we won't understand what the problem is with the story. It's not the story it's that we are fooled by the story. Now, first let's talk about why we are fooled by the story. And I, I can only come up with a crude image. If we think of consciousness as a shoreless ocean, limitless shoreless ocean, producing all these forms, all these phenomena like waves. And some of these waves are... Thoughts, memories, images, mental phenomena. And intrinsic in the wave is attention, which is a power of consciousness, if you like. In other words, no phenomena appears without attention. Phenomena and attention are inseparable. Ultimately, they're the same thing. And that includes the story. So, in your mind, if you watch carefully an episode of the story forming. Let's say it's the story of what happened at work yesterday and how a colleague insulted me and how I did not respond in a skillful way and how today I am still suffering now in the present and how my mind continues to weave this story either by going back and saying, oh, this is what I should have done, and playing a little fantasy, or by going, spinning forward, fast-forwarding, saying, this is what I'm going to do tomorrow, when I see that person again, I'm, I didn't say anything, but now I feel terrible, I'm going to give him hell, (laughs) whatever it is, you watch, what is happening is this wave of consciousness is arising, and with this wave is attention, getting very absorbed in this story, right? Now, it's as if we lost track of the fact that that wave was anchored in this infinite shoreless consciousness. We got so absorbed in the story that the story took on a reality it does not have. Then our suffering changes. Our suffering changes from enjoying the story, to the suffering of the character who is the victim in the story. Because the character in the story to whom all this is happening is, suddenly that is who I am, not this great ocean of consciousness, but this fictitional little I in the story. And not only that, when we take the story to be real, it Condenses, if you like, it solidifies. It's as though that wave now suddenly started to turn to ice. It becomes inflexible, immutable. It becomes like a, a house made of ice that now we have to live in. It's like we were sitting there in the theater watching Jurassic Park, having a great time. We became more and more absorbed in the movie, and suddenly we find ourselves in the movie. <laughs> And suddenly it's no longer fun. (laughs) When you look into the mouth of that, you know, Tyrannosaurus rex. (laughs) What happened there? Now we don't actually, you see, get into the movie. You can't get into the movie. The whole of consciousness can't become only one of its little stories. But we lose sight of that. We lose track of that. So this is why there is such emphasis in all the traditions about becoming mindful, about watching the space between the stories, about developing the ability to uh, have attention be still so it doesn't get absorbed in this story or that story. So And that begins with just any little phenomenon. You know, if you've watched your own mind, if you've been mindful at all, you know you're walking down the street and something happens. You walk past the Taco Bell and the whiff of Taco Bell comes and reminds you of some time when you were a teenager with a friend when you went to Taco Bell. And then that reminds you that that friend uh, betrayed you, went out with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. And then that sets you off on a whole thing about Oh, maybe all my problems today in my relationships come from that. I don't know. It's just amazing how the whiff of a, a taco stand can start a chain, to, to start the story going. And it's true. So, even to train attention, to begin to train attention, not to follow any phenomena. Not because we permanently don't want attention to follow phenomena. We just want to break that spell for a moment. We want to realize, that we're, no, we're not in the movie. We are sitting in the theater. So how do we do that? Slow down the projector, right? Oh, now you start to see how the movie's made up. It's one frame comes on the screen, goes away. The next frame suddenly the whole spell of the movie starts to be broken. Not because you never want to watch movies again. Simply, you want to know, what is the nature of this movie? Where is this movie coming from? All right, turn your your attention away from the screen. Tear your attention away from the screen. And, you know, you sit in the theater and you see the beams of light from the projector. And turn the attention back to the source, the light. The light of consciousness that illuminates and creates all this. These are all what the techniques of meditation are about. Of stillness, of being in the now, of not getting wrapped up in the story. They're just all about breaking the spell. Not that there's anything wrong with the story. This is really, really so important. Once... The spell is broken. And by the way, the spell can start to uh, lose its hold. It doesn't necessarily all break at once. You turn the sound down, you know, and suddenly you don't know what the characters are talking about, and you still are fascinated by the visuals and stuff, but you're not quite so absorbed in the story. And now you understand a little bit of how the story is constructed. You turn the sound back on, you turn it off. Oh, you see that these two elements really are both necessary to really absorb in the story. So through a process of meditation and then mindfulness, carrying that training into your everyday life, watching your mind as it creates these stories, as it uh, dwells on the past and these memories, as it plans for the future, just gives you that distance that you begin to see, well, wait a minute, this isn't so real. Well, wait a minute, I can see as this is going on, this is just made up of thoughts here. This is why this is so important. You start to get that distance. At some point, at some point, it's like, boom, you realize you're sitting in your seat in the theater and you actually never left your seat. It was all a delusion. When that happens, there's no more problem with any story of any kind that arises. In fact, when that happens, there's a tremendous freedom because you are not locked into one story. As I said before, what happens when we fall into delusion, we believe our story most of the time. And we disbelieve anybody else's story unless it conforms to our story. And when we see it's all fiction, there's a flexibility, a fluidity to be able to move through stories. And that means reconstruing the past in different ways. And... Replanning, re-envisioning the future in different ways. And then we can do it in conjunction with how other people are doing it. So instead of the story isolating us, it, it becomes a dance. It's something we do now together. We don't have any territory to stake out. This is the way I remember it. I am right and you're wrong. And you're probably being maliciously wrong or just plain stupid, or you're losing your mind, you're getting old or senile or something because something must be wrong with you because my story is the right story. So what happens is compassion and love enter into this process of constructing stories. It's like the difference maybe if you've ever worked on any sort of committee to do something creative. Any kind of uh, uh, performance that requires teamwork. It is such a joy when everybody's together. It may not even be something artistic. Maybe you're just brainstorming in an office for a project going on, do you know? When people have dropped their egos, when they're throwing things out, when those juices are flowing, do you know what I mean? Did anybody have an experience? That's a wonderful experience. That's the best of the film business, by the way. The very same situation is. A nightmare when everybody's got their own ego and clinging to their own ideas of what they want and not listening to each other. This is the difference between love and compassion and self-centered egotism at work here. It's not the activity that's the problem. It's the approach we're taking. So we have to free ourselves from this, this spell of the story, the way the story is woven. And we do that by coming to see how the story is woven. Yes?
3: Isn't a big part of the problem that we're taught since we're born that the story is real, and this is a new way of looking at our existence, and the culture doesn't support it. And it's, it's too easy to stay caught into these habitual ways of thinking and being. Um, and it, it, it's work to unlearn it.
1: That is definitely true. That is definitely part of the problem. And it's worse in our society because we don't even have a sacred societies. So we don't even have, in our worldview, our contemporary materialist worldview, we don't even have a sign in that worldview pointing to the exit, which sacred societies do. If you grow up in India, you may be still caught up in samsara and the whole story, and you may live just as a self-centered, grasping, greedy life as anybody in this culture. But you know from growing up that if you wanted to, you could go off to the Ganges and you could find one of these yogis, do you know what I mean? And you could study and you could get out. In the back of your mind somewhere, you know that all this is Maya. I mean, that is what the culture teaches. Even though that may not be uh, how you are experiencing your life, but at least there is built into the culture, you know, that exit door. So, yes, you're absolutely right. So, this is one of the reasons we gather here, uh, like minded seekers, to support each other in our quest to discover this for ourselves. And that's why groups like this are very important. That's why in Buddhism, you know, it's the, uh, the, the Dharma, the Sangha, and the uh, Buddha. 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 Yes, the Buddha. <laughs> yeah, the, the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, the three jewels of Buddhism. This is what we need. The Sangha is the community. The Dharma is the teaching, and the Buddha is the teacher. So yes, very important. Now let's come down to something a little bit more practical level even than that. So here we are, spiritual seekers. Understand, we hope, understand intellectually at least what is going on here, but we want to experience this in our lives. We're being mindful. We're doing the practices. We're watching how our memories arise, and how they get woven into a story about the past. We're watching how our plans for the future arise. We're watching how, because we are absorbed in the story, because we take it to be real, and because we take ourselves to be real in the story, and because we think that then our happiness depends on the story, working out okay for that character in the story, we get very attached. We get attached to various things, but more importantly in terms of story, we get attached to things going the way we want them to go. We get attached to situations in the story. We don't want to let them go when it's time to let them go in the past, and we don't want to let go of our the way we envision the future and how this character in the story is going to be happy in the future. When that vision no longer has any relation to the eternal now that is unfolding. So this is specifically what causes our suffering. This is the attachment part. And we can can come to recognize that. We can come to recognize in quite fine detail how we're attached to a certain, let's say, begin with a memory. And when we can recognize the attachment, the recognition That it is just a memory, just a mental phenomena, just a piece of imagination is what creates the detachment. We don't have to do something extra in there. So your uh, friends there who, um, or your friend who writes her journals, I don't know what her attitude is. But when you're writing your journal, whether you're writing it out on paper or you're writing it out on your mind, recognize you're creating a story. You aren't telling events as they actually really happened. You are recording your memories. And if you go compare them with other people's memories, the other characters that are in your story, you will find discrepancies. If you are convinced that your way of all this unfolding is right, that will bother you. That will cause you suffering at least some mental suffering, that will be disturbing. If you recognize that these memories are constantly being created and recreated, interesting to have a dialogue with those people. Maybe you'll come up with a new set of memories. Maybe if it's a family situation, your whole family will come up with a new set of memories. Maybe the memories are so, uh, there's so much discrepancy that you can't. Maybe that's what you have to deal with. Maybe the fact that there's something you can't bridge with your family, if it's a, quote, as we say today, dysfunctional family. You look into that more, then part of that memory perhaps was a longing for the family to be different. So you're coming to terms, not with the ultimate reality, you're coming to terms with the reality of the story, though the conditions and terms of the story. You see what I mean? but you always know it's a story. You always know it's being created.
2: But we don't want to get too relative here, do we? I mean, there's a limit to relativity.
1: No, there's no limit whatsoever to relativity. It is all oh, come relative.
2: On, I'm just simply saying, this isn't anything too esoteric. There are, there are some facts.
1: Oh, good. Name me one. Oh, for pizza. <laughs> now, see, how do you know his name is Pete? <laughs> Maybe it's a spiritual name he adopted. Well, Maybe he was switched in the hospital, see, <laughs> with his parents. You don't know he's really Pete, do you?
2: Okay, let's let's take what she's saying. She's saying Karen is sitting here on the chair and speaking. Okay, that's you get that's the universe. And I agree with that, that Therese. and she agrees with me.
1: Well, again, I can say, how do you know that's Karen sitting on the chair? Maybe Karen has a twin sister, and they said, we'll play a joke on them. I'm going to stay home today. Her twin sister's visiting, and you go and sit in my place and see if they can recognize. We don't get to a point where we say, all right, everything the mystics say is true, except this I know is really real. That is an obstacle. Now we might say, in practice... There are certain things that you accept within the limits, knowing that they're all relative. You you assume, so the story can go on, that they're true, at least for now. Otherwise, we would be like Hamlet. You know the story of Hamlet? That's his whole problem. He doesn't know what actually happened. Did his mother and, and uncle kill his father or not? The ghost says they did, and this and that. The whole play is he's immobilized with inaction because he cannot decide. The reason he cannot decide is he's looking for the absolute truth. He's never going to find the absolute truth in the story. By the nature, the story is fiction. That's what's confused him. Once we understand it's fiction, we can act without any hesitation. We're not under the burden of finding out what is the ultimate truth in the story. We are under the burden of spiritual seekers of finding out the ultimate truth, but we're never going to find it in the story. So what we come up with is a story that we feel is a good story, and within that story we act. You know, actors and actresses don't refuse to act because they say, well, this is just a play, it's just fiction. Laurence <laughs> uh, Olivier didn't turn down Hamlet, you know. He said, no, I Hamlet, that was Hamlet. <laughs> Imaginary. Why should I? Why should I get out on stage and do this? Not only did he not refuse to do it, he got out and he did it, and he threw himself completely into the part.
2: Okay. So, like, let's say, I, I, maybe we're talking about two different things. Okay. I just wanted to say that there are certain things that seem, on this relative plane, relatively speaking, are facts. Like, you're in your car and you're. You don't know your spouse is in the garage, and like he walks out into the driveway, and you back up and run him over, and he's dead. Me.
3: See? I oh, see how
1: marvelous the story mind is. I mean, real. This is a wonderful example. That. Wow. So, so, but like, you could say,
2: well, was it really me driving a car? <laughs> Maybe I was driving a tractor. Maybe I, you know, maybe it wasn't me. Maybe it was my twin sister. Oh! You see what I'm saying? (laughs) Yes, I do. I'm just saying, for all intents and purposes, there are certain, that's all I wanted.
1: But look, the problem is, if your mind is thinking that way, you are not uh, looking at one story and comparing it to another story. You're looking at these stories and trying to decide which one is the true story. And what I'm saying is that you will never find the true story. What you will find are consensus stories, stories that have more or less consensus. In other words, the more people around you agree with you what happened or not. What you will find are stories that make you examine yourself or not. For instance, let's say you got in the car and you did just what you did. You backed into your spouse and you didn't see him in the driveway and you killed him. Now, let's say you'd been uh, really angry at your spouse. You just had a big fight, right? And let's say the police were suspicious that maybe this wasn't an accident. <laughs> <laughs> now, okay, this story, Now, in this story you have to really probe your motives for your own sake. I mean, you might be even convicted, but did you really not know they were there? Your sisters snuck Yeah, or like
0: he was, he was what, so say? troubled. Your sisters had to have snuck in. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> he, he was so troubled, was so
2: troubled that he kind of staggered out into the driveway. He never would have staggered out in quite that way. If he wasn't so upset from the fight, so then I have to feel guilty. Oh yeah, okay. I well,
1: good. Look, now it's sorry. getting rich.
3: <laughs> <laughs> the story is
1: getting wonderfully complex, but it's no—it's no truer than any other story. You see what I mean? It's just like we were sitting down here. And we well, what I'm right. saying
2: is the truth of that story is that it does seem that I was behind the wheel and the car that I was driving did run over this man and he's now dead. Whatever happened, the subtleties of it could be up for grabs, but that seems like... Look,
1: if we're talking about truth in relation within the context of the story, the story and the culture tells us what's true or not. So, for instance, in our society, the legal system is a very good way of looking at this. Presumably, the legal system is designed to ferret out the truth of what happened. And particularly in that situation, the, the facts are not in dispute, right? Now that means they 're not in dispute within the context of this cultural story. Everybody arrives in the courtroom. The defense isn 't saying you weren't behind the wheel. Uh, your defense lawyer isn't saying you didn't back into the sky, and the defense is not saying he faked his death someplace. Everybody 's granted that all those things are true. So in that, when we use truth in that sense we 're using truth ter- just like you would use it in a movie, just like if this was you were watching this drama in a courtroom movie, and you would accept. What everybody's saying, all the characters on the screen, except, of course, there's no car, there's no you, there's no house, there's no character, it's all life forms. But given the context of the story, certainly we can do that. Now, it's very interesting because a movie uh, in this culture can be very different from a movie in another culture. So, for instance, in uh, another culture, let's say you and your spouse had a fight, and you left and uh, came home, and your spouse was found lying dead in the living room, but with no physical wounds or traces of any violence or anything. But you were known to have dabbled in witchcraft. Now we'd have another courtroom (laughs) drama. Did she or did she not? And this, we laugh, but these dramas have taken place in the world, and they continue (laughs) to take place in the world today. Uh, In Africa, they continue to stone people for sorcery. But it's not arbitrary. You have to find out and prove. Were they a sorcerer? Did they put a curse on this person? They have their own versions of trials and stories and doubts and back and forth. You see what I'm talking about? So all that's true in that society as well. So this is why I said there's no limit to the relativity. There are limits in the sense of the limit of being within the story. But not an ultimate limit that we can ultimately arrive at some truth here. This is really an important thing, now to come to your question, to uh, recognize. Because how do you know when you've processed enough of the story of yesterday? You know, if you're looking for what is the final true answer, you're never going to find it. Your mind is going to continue processing. Even if it stops processing for a while, it thinks it's found the answer, then A week, a month, a year, 10 years go by, and it comes up again. And everybody says in our culture, I thought I was done with that issue. (laughs) You're never done with that issue. You're never done with the story. The point is, how can you play in the story to bring out the love and compassion? How can you play in the story in such a way that the story is enjoyable, that you appreciate the story? It's not a question of whether you're right or wrong in an ultimate sense. It can be in the sense of the courtroom. In the courtroom, someone's right or someone's wrong. You know, There's a witness, says something, and then a counter-witness comes up and says, I can prove that person lied. Oh, now we know they lied, they're wrong. But in an ultimate sense, how do you know you've lived your life rightly or wrong? And that comes down to any particular moment. You don't. Look, Gandhi said this so beautifully. Gandhi said, you know, I can never know the outcome of my actions. He meant in terms of they're ultimately going to be right or not. <clears throat> Only God does that. This is the teaching of Bhagavad Gita, that I'm not responsible for the result of my action, the fruit of my action. And we always look to that. What I'm responsible for is the intention in the action. That I can be responsible for. I can act with as much love and compassion as I am capable in this moment. Not as much love and compassion as Mother Teresa of Calcutta seems to exhibit, because I'm not capable of that. But if I can act with as much love and compassion as I'm capable of this moment, then I've already, quote, fulfilled my obligations, no matter what happens as a result of the action. Now, it is true, we also... Uh, have, you know, brains and intelligence and whatnot, if the action turns out to actually have caused unintended harm, we can then look back and we can create a story here that allows us to alter that response in the future should a similar situation arise. So, we're not like being naive. We're not saying, everything I do, you know, I always had a good heart and I just was going with the flow and, you know, like... Some uh, flower child. Mm -hmm. But it still comes back to that. That's the wisdom part. I can see, okay, that action, actually, I thought it was going to be helpful to people. It turned out not to be. So next time, let me not be stupid and just repeat that. By the way, often when we're trapped in that condition story, we do repeat it because we don't know how not to repeat it because we can't recognize that, oh, these are thoughts. Fictions, imagination. And that's the beauty of imagination. It can be altered, changed. We can think up new stories. That is the creativity of the world. I just read a review in the New York Times book review about a book that came out by a new scientist who has the idea of throwing out all science as we've known it so far, going back to the calculus, <laughs> and starting with algorithms. you heard of this? Stephen Wolfram. <clears throat> yeah. I have no way of judging I'm- I'm not qualified to judge, but this is startling. Here we had this story, the science story. We thought we'd arrived, now we finally got the facts. And here comes the guys, whether it works or not, but it's possible it could work, who's gonna throw all that out and start from a whole different basis. If that were to happen, you know, and people got educated in that worldview, 100 years from now, the world would appear completely different to everybody in our culture. You wouldn't be talking about space, time, electrons, black holes, galaxies, all that. I don't know what they'd be talking about. Algorithms. I don't even know what an algorithm is, but that's what they'll be talking in terms of. So here's what I'm saying. It is this looking at what's going on, and you have to answer that question for yourself. But answer it for yourself in terms of seeing that it is an ongoing play. Do you know what I mean? That you process it enough that you can arrive at a new version of this ongoing story. That you can be creative and change. Now you're going to play that story out. And then your interactions with people are going to change it again. Your story is always going to be changed. There isn't a fixed story. Do you see what I mean? And it's going to be changing in relation to that dance. See, we have this other idea that is completely insane, causes this tremendous unhappiness that life is like a movie, especially Western movies. You know, Western is always like happy endings. That at the end of the movie, we're going to ride off into the sunset, and that's it. And it never happens, does it? Have you ever ridden off to the sunset and that was it? The story was over? No.
2: <laughs>
1: Jennifer, I just saw this movie last night, Kate and Leopold. Have you ever seen it? It's cute, romantic comedy. Better than a lot of them these days. And they go back and forth in time. Meg Ryan's this modern uh, career woman, and this gentleman comes from eighteen seventy six through time, and he courts her. She can't believe it. This guy's, you know, like a gent. They don't make him like that anymore. anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. Well, it's not that great movie. I'll tell you. Finally, she goes back in time to be with him. They, you know, boy meets girl, boy loses girl. Well, in this case, it's girl. Girl meets boy, girl loses boy, girl finds boy. So at the very end, she goes back in time. And it's one of those you know, uh, wonderful moments where he's about to, back in time, announce his marriage to you know, this other woman that we all know is going to be terrible for. He's just marrying for the money. And she comes through the time hole, and <laughs> she walks in and says, and yes, I'm announcing my engagement to Kate. Oh, and then everybody 's looking who she, and then they kiss, right? That's, and then the credits roll. I want to know what their life 's going to be like, this modern career woman from the future, having to live in this 19th century society, you know stuffy society where women are expected to be at home. How long is this relationship really going to last? I mean, you know, manners goes a long way, especially in a world of boors, but how far does it really go? so we don 't ever ride off into the sunset. Enlightenment is not about riding off into the sunset. That is a total myth about happiness. That is the myth that projects happiness in the future at the end of the story. Or it may be the myth that projects happiness into the past, which which happens to a lot of people. And that may be the case. Who is talking about their friends talk about their past all the way back to first grade? I know a woman who's husband died relatively young she doesn't have any ambition to go out and get an education or career or whatever she lives totally in the past I mean you know every time you go over there she pulls out the albums and you know and oh what a wonderful Christmas and this and that and so forth you know she's living completely in the past by the way to get this you have to rewrite the story of the past you you have to leave out a lot of stuff (laughs) (laughs) and the memories get more glowing and golden you know as time goes on So we can be attached either way, the happy ending in the future, the happy ending in the past. And then a lot of people take that idea of happiness, and then they bring that to a spiritual path. I'm going to practice and practice until I get enlightened, and then I'm going to be happy. I mean, in a certain limited way, it's true. You practice and practice until you get enlightened, but then you don't become happy. Then you see happiness was here all the time. That's why I say it's retroactive. It's It's not in time. You don't become happy at a certain point in time. You drop out of time. I would sum all this up with three very simple, almost corny things. Learn from the past. Plan for the future. But live in the present. I just put that out as one of those little reminders that maybe will be useful to you in the course of the day. When you are looking at the past, when you are going over the past, what is there to learn from it? That's the point of going over the past. Not to prove that you were right or wrong, not because happiness was in the past, not for any of these reasons. What are you actually going to learn by doing this? In terms of continuing the creation of the story, the drama ongoing. And when you're planning for the future. But if we always are in the present, not, I, even though there is no present, <laughs> but if we are present for, let's put it that way, if we are present for what is going on, whether it's memories arising or planning arising, or whatever, there's never a problem. And we also should be present for the spaces in between what's going on. So, has this been helpful to those of you who raised this? Does anybody want to ask more about your specific input into the question, your original specific input?
0: Um, When we talk about dealing with the story, to go back to the ocean analogy, I suppose you could could see the story as story and discover that you were the ocean. Or you could kind of stumble over the fact that you were the ocean and then you could see that the story was a story. I mean, you've got to have... The only way to really see the story as a story is to be the ocean, isn't
1: it? Let me put it this way. It's not just seeing that the story is a story. Because it's like, okay, you understand that this movie is being projected on the screen, right? Now you understand it's fiction. (laughs) So you understand so much about it. I mean, a certain That's amount of that. Well, no, you can understand to experience, you know, you slow that movie down and you start to see the blank spaces on the screen between where each frame falls and things like that. And so the whole absorption of story really falls apart for you and so forth. But again, it's a very crude analogy, but you still don't know then who you really are. Well, if I'm not a character in the story, I, I'm confused. I'm bewildered. I don't know what's going on here. Is that somehow you become aware also what these images are, that they're all forms of light, that all this is forms of consciousness? Then I, quote unquote, know who I really am. Then I know the whole story, to go back to their story metaphor, do you see what I mean? So, this is why people go through periods on the spiritual path where they lose all interest in the story or any story. Dark nights, uh periods of aridity. They recognize it's just all story, and your interest dries up. And when your interest dries up, the tension is retracted.
0: But don't they have to be pretty wet then? Pretty what? Pretty wet. Yeah. In order to see that.
1: Pretty wet. We're getting I mean, another part in of the ocean. ocean. Oh, uh, not necessarily. No, not necessarily. I
0: mean, because I can see that my my personality and conditioned self, and so I can see that, I can even describe it pretty well to you, the whole story of it, but that's mostly an intellectual exercise. Well,
1: yeah, you can understand this intellectually, most people do first understand it intellectually, and that's why it's so important to develop this mindfulness. We practice and practice, first in terms of a formal practice, but uh, that is only the basis to bring that mindfulness to everyday life. So you start to experience it as a story, not just understand it intellectually as a story. So when you are caught up in those memories of the past arising, right there you're recognizing this is just memory, this is just imagination. When you are uh, planning for the future, as you're planning, you can be very absorbed by the way in planning. Some people, you know, especially when they try this, it's difficult because they think, I'm going to be detached now, mind go plan. But part of our planning is sometimes envisioning. Do you know what I mean? I have to envision the possibilities. So how do I do that? You have to struggle with that and, and grapple with that. But a good idea is to start slowly. And you recognize this plan uh, is you know just a thought. So how should I, um, I don't know, fly to New Orleans? So then I get on the internet and I start comparing prices. Do you know what I mean? And So I, I recognize my mind is planning, these plans aren't real, all this may never happen, you know, I mean uh, I might get run over by my spouse uh, that afternoon <laughs> and, and then I start, you know, seeing various hotels there's this sleek modern one, has all air conditioning and all that well, the air conditioning's nice because I know it's summer in New Orleans is, you know, hot and muggy and all that but, I, you know, that looks a little sterile, oh here's this little place down the French Quarter, you know, it's got the wrought iron balconies and all that, you know doesn't have uh, air conditioning, but they say, uh, actually, the month I'm going, where it's located, it's kind of breezy. Oh, I start imagining myself, oh, I'm going to be standing in that balcony, you know, I'll have to be a daiquiri, and uh, <laughs> yeah. I'll be hearing jazz float up from the street. And, you know, now I'm getting really absorbed into it, right? <laughs> now, at some point, you see, if, if I practice mindfulness, I can do all that and never lose track of the fact this is all in my imagination. And if I can do that, when I get to New Orleans... And when I check into that hotel, and when not only it doesn't have air conditioning, but the faucet <laughs> leaks, there are cockroaches, uh, the, the weather is stifling, the jazz is not drifting in from the street, it's below uh, you know, the floor and the bass is, you know, I'm not hanging on to that image I had. You see what I mean? So this is the whole process. Now, I've, I've done everything I would have done normally. I planned that I didn't try to envision myself there. But I've never lost track of what has been happening.
0: But it's us trying to be aware, to experience the story going along, rather than just to know that it's there.
1: Yes, well, that is what I mean by experience. It's going on. The difference is, you know, it is a story as it's going on, not just automatically sucked in. Yes.
3: But then, don't you have it? Then your new story is that you're someone that is experiencing <laughs> right. the story.
1: That is correct. And on a spiritual path, we do, in a sense, develop an interim identity. I am now a spiritual seeker. And that's very valuable because it changes your priorities. If you are really now going to be a spiritual seeker, a committed spiritual seeker, if this is the most important thing in your life to discover the truth, then all the rest of the priorities in your life will shift automatically. Now, it may not be much of an outward shift, or there may be a big outward shift, depending on what you've been doing. But suddenly things will be different from that point on. I mean it may not be suddenly, but that sometimes happens gradually with people, but their life starts to be led differently. And if you look over a five, ten year period, it can affect where you live, what kind of job you have, who your friends are, you know. I mean that's how you know they've undergone profound life changes. That's what a change means.
3: And then but that is your story. That's that's the story That is that your doing. story. And I understand that these are devices in right. a sense when you realize that This is a device that you're using at this moment to direct consciousness. That's right. Focus consciousness. But I am concerned about, um, and I don't have a good example, but I've read this kind of um, within a spiritual path, the the stacking of one illusion on another to to get confused. With these, and maybe this is an example. I don't know that of having that kind of story, that of spiritual progress.
1: Well, in fact, if you don't have any story, you are by definition enlightened. The definition of being deluded is you have a story. So why not have a story that will take you to enlightenment instead of a story that will keep you in delusion? (laughs) So the story of the spiritual seeker, unlike these other stories, self-destructs. It destroys the illusion that it's anything but a story. So this is what the Buddha said. The Dharma, the teachings, are a raft to use to cross the ocean of suffering. When you get to the other side, you don't carry the raft around. You have no more use for it. Same thing with, with that so it story. In a sense
3: when you're starting to experience the ego as that device. As it struggles to get center stage, um, taking energy out of that and Allowing it to just be set aside.
1: My experience and the experience of many seekers, uh, if you read through their biographies or autobiographies, is that this new self-identity, it's not the same thing as you thought of as the old ego. So it's like a new character. Now, there often is a battle with the ego. The ego starts to seem like, not me, but another character in my story who doesn't want me to go on this spiritual quest. (laughs) And so you have these, you know, descriptions of spiritual warfare and back and forth. And sometimes the shift does not happen like all of a sudden. And the new self also has another interesting quality about it. That new self is by nature humble, open, knows it does not know. You're not really on a spiritual path unless you're starting with the idea, I thought I knew what it was all about, Alfie, and now I realize I don't. So, uh, teach me is the attitude of a spiritual seeker. I am open to, to teaching. This is what Jesus meant when he said, we have to become like little children then to the kingdom of God, not emotional children, but we have to have that sense of wonder and openness So we don't know. We know we don't know. That opens us to a grace that starts to move through our life, that starts to govern our life, that we can surrender to more and more. So even from the beginning, that spiritual self is giving up its control, its, its surrendering more and more. So that's what I mean by it. Not only is it a different, just a different story of what I'm after and all that, but the character in the story, instead of trying to get more and more, is learning to let go more and more and more.
3: Mm-hmm. And, and consequently become more and more receptive.
1: They go by together.
3: Giving, by giving up and receiving.
1: Giving up is becoming receptive. So it's not a question of layering another story on. It is a question of sort of making a a shift in the base of reference. And then different dynamics are set up in that new story. The kind of dynamics where things enter in the story that weren't part of the old story. Experiences, intuition, grace, dreams and stuff. That start to transform that character and transform it in a way that is dismantling that character really. All right, it's uh, twelve forty-seven. I understand Ram Das is going to be on the radio at what one
3: forty-five?
1: What? That gives you plenty of time. You quickly grab a book, run home, and turn on the radio. <laughs> Until we see you all, peace.